Our Father, as we come to you today, we come to a passage, Lord, that many of us have heard a lot of times, and we just pray that you would make it fresh for us, make it new for us, Lord. Show us what you would have us learn from this passage as we remember that your word will always do what you intended for it to accomplish. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to studying, learning from your word, and doing uh, what it commands of us, that you would be pleased in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can see up here, the title of our passage is Compromise, Condemnation, and the Grace of God. Compromise is kind of the theme of our verse today. It's defined as a settlement of differences by mutual concessions, an agreement reached by adjustment of conflicting or opposing claims, principles, etc., by reciprocal modification of demands. End quote. And sometimes compromise is a good thing, and sometimes it's even a necessary thing. You cannot go through life never compromising on anything. You'll have a car accident, if nothing else, right? But we are just like everyone else in the sense that we are unique, just like everybody else. Uh, but we're, we're different from other people. And when you have different people and different ideas and different values, etc., etc., there will be situations in life in which some give and some take is absolutely necessary. And compromise will not only uh, be, a, be a good thing, but it will also be beneficial to you. The question is, to what extent should we be willing to compromise? Is everything, is absolutely everything negotiable? No, it's not. And sometimes compromise can be pointless. Sometimes compromise can even be dangerous. When we're talking about sin, for example, compromise is dangerous. We need to understand that when we're talking about sin, there, there's no room for compromise. We should also understand that the devil's strategy has always been to entice God's people to compromise. There's a story of a man and a bear who decided to compromise. Winter was coming, and so the hunter goes out into the forest. He's going to shoot a bear because he's cold and he needs a coat. And so he comes across a bear, and he, he raises his gun. He's about to shoot it, and the bear says, Wait a minute, why, are you wanna, why do you want to shoot me? And the hunter says, because I'm, I'm cold, I'm, I'm freezing, and it's just getting colder out here. And the bear responds, but I'm hungry, so maybe we could reach a compromise. And in the end, the hunter finds himself definitely enveloped in the bear's fur, and the bear gets himself a meal, so they're both happy. We must not compromise with sin. It will consume us in the end. Our sermon today comes from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And what we're going to see in our lesson today is that compromising with sin is an invitation for judgment. Compromising with sin is an invitation for God's discipline. We'll also see how God responds to sin and how he feels about sin. 
Our passage today begins as a continuation of the previous chapter. While it does make sense to to end chapter 5 where they did, we have to remember that the chapter breaks aren't inspired. God didn't put the chapter breaks in there. Man did as a way of making it easier to reference. So while uh, it it does make perfect sense to end chapter 5 where they did, uh, we must nevertheless come to chapter 6 with an understanding that this is just a continuation of the thought that was being generated and continuing through chapter 5. Through chapters 4 and 5, we saw two genealogies, two genealogical lines. Starting in chapter 4, we looked at the line of Cain, We looked at the Cainites, which flourished in the city of Enoch, the city which Cain himself had founded. And we saw that they were making these enormous social advances. They were prospering. They were coming up with all kinds of new technology for the time. And then in chapter 5, we looked at the line of Seth. And while the Cainites had flourished materially, maybe financially, socially, the Sethites flourished spiritually. Both lines, the Cainites and the Sethites, increased in number exponentially, giving us a rough guesstimate, as we saw, of up to a million people walking the face of the earth, uh, all of whom had descended from Adam by the end of the fifth chapter of Genesis. So it's important to remember this, because as he begins chapter 6, Moses, the author, is, he's going to kind of back up here. He's going to back up and fill in some gaps. He's going to go back to the time when all this multiplication of, of the human race began, when, when people started multiplying and filling the earth. And so this chapter starts with Moses filling in the gaps of chapter 5 and some of chapter 4. What happened while all of this multiplication of the human race was going on? So we start with Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This doesn't mark the beginning of compromise. This doesn't mark the first compromise, nor does it mark the last, of course. The first compromise took place back in chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden, in the third chapter, when Eve came to the serpent who tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit, and she compromised. So this doesn't mark the first compromise. What this does mark, however, is the first compromise that took place on absolutely a massive, massive scale. Moses tells us that the sons of God were taking the daughters of man as their wives. Now, just to be honest up front here, there are very few passages in all of Scripture that, are, uh, that, that have as many ideas and opinions as this one. This one, you even find people who think that there are aliens involved in this one. It's so wild. There are a few passages which, which prove to be so problematic because there's this term, sons of God, and we're not exactly sure, or people aren't exactly sure what that means. We don't have a lot of difficulty figuring out who the daughters of men are. That, that's an easy one. But the sons of God, who, who are they? Well, one of the things that you do when you come across a term or a phrase that seems sort of ambiguous or unclear or just something that's 
completely new and you don't know exactly what it is, is you look throughout Scripture and you see how it's used elsewhere. So if you were to look for the term sons of God, you'd find it throughout Scripture. But the only other Old Testament book in which you would find this term is in the book of Job, and it's used in reference to angels. So, with that in mind, very early on in the history of the church, pastors and students of the Bible believed that these were angels. That's what the Jews believed prior to Christ. That had been the interpretation. However, in the second century, both the Jewish interpreters and Christian interpreters started diverging from that view. And realizing that, well, for Christians, they were realizing, hey, in the New Testament we find this term, and it's always used in reference to God's people. So what do we do with this term, given the fact that it's used in a positive sense throughout Scripture? So they took the view that these were the Sethites, that the sons of God were Sethites. Uh, Jesus also used the term in a positive sense, of God's people. And that's how Paul used the term. So by the 3rd century A.D., the consensus among Christians was that the sons of God were Sethites. And for 15 or 1,600 years, there was really no question about that. So now we fast forward to the 19th century. In the 19th century, scholarship became very critical and very skeptical of the Bible. And scholars, by and large, were dismissing biblical stories as being myths and allegories because these scholars had rejected the supernatural. So starting in the 19th century, many started going back to this view that the sons of God were actually angels. They were fallen angels. Why? Because they thought that this was a myth. Because they didn't think that this was true in a literal sense. And that view that these are angels that we're talking about is still remarkably popular today, even though the skepticism that brought us back to that view that it's angels has been thoroughly responded to and debunked. So how are we to know who these sons of God are? Are they fallen angels or are they human beings? I'm not even going to address the idea that they're aliens because that's just silly. So how do we know which one it would be? Maybe we can't know for sure, absolutely, positively, uh, which it might be. And while this probably isn't a hill that's, you know, worth dying on, uh, and, you know, and, and, and fighting for, um, it's definitely not worth dividing over between Christians. We should nevertheless Always seek and desire to understand God's Word. And with that said, there are some very significant reasons to reject the idea that these are angels. First of all, when we see the term sons of God used in Job, which is the only other place in the Old Testament where you can find the word being used, it's used there not in reference to angels who are fallen, It's used in reference to angels who are faithfully serving God. And what that means is that every time you find this term, it's used in a positive sense. It's not referring to a sinful being. It's referring to somebody who's being faithful unto God. So there's one good, very good reason to reject the idea that these are fallen angels. More importantly, however, given the fact that the author has just identified two groups for us, right? The Cainites and the Sethites. 
the most logical and consistent view is that the sons of God are those through whom the promise of God's son, the Messiah, was passed, which is through the Sethites. It's very important that we have a consistent method to interpreting and reading the Bible. And if we, if we just throw consistency out the window, we might end up with the idea that these are angels. But perhaps most importantly, we have to understand that the theme of this chapter overall is not the rebellion of angels. The theme of this chapter is not the rebellion of angels. The theme of this chapter is the rebellion of humanity against God. If fallen angels were creating a problem by taking over the the bodies of people or, or whatever. God could have done something just to sequester or separate them from humanity or or destroy them rather than destroying humanity. So why does why does it even matter? Is it a hill worth dying on or not? Well it's not a major theological point in and of itself, but it's part of a major, major theological point. First of all, it demonstrates the danger of God's people compromising with the world. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, it tells us that the wickedness which grieves God in this chapter is not unique to a sin that is promoted or, or, or practiced by fallen angels. No, the wickedness which grieves God is not unique to Genesis chapter 6. This is still the way that God feels about sin. And that's important because then we realize that the human condition, the condition of the human heart then, back in chapter 6 here, the condition of the human heart then is identical to the condition of the human heart in Moses' time, is identical to the condition of the human heart in Jesus' time, is identical in condition to the heart in our time. And it is crucial. It is absolutely necessary. It is vital that we understand and accept that much. That our hearts, this is a reflection of of our hearts, the human heart today, here in Genesis chapter 6. See, this passage isn't, it's not so much that it's difficult to understand if you just read it straightforwardly. What makes it difficult to understand is a failure to be consistent in our approach to reading and studying the Bible. So we see that there was a great compromise that was made starting off in the beginning of chapter 6 here. What was that compromise? The compromise... Moses' choice of words here is very interesting, by the way. He says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And this should kind of ring a bell for us, especially if if we're looking at this in in Hebrew, which I know that you're not. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good. In the same sense... The sons of God here saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And this word attractive is actually the same word as the word that gets translated as good back in chapter 3. So they saw that the daughters of man were good, and they did the same thing. They didn't think about what would please God. They didn't think about what God would want them to do. They saw that it was good, and they took. They acted on their own assessment of what was good, which is always a bad idea. 
Just like Adam and Eve compromised with sin, now we see that everybody, everybody is compromising with sin. Even those who knew better or should have known better. What a roller coaster this is, right? Chapter 5 seemed to give us a strong sense of hope. Chapter 4 was pretty dark. Chapter 5 gave us a sense of hope. But now we see that ultimately the Sethites failed to remain faithful and obedient and devoted to God. Over time, they apparently gave up hope in God's promise to send an offspring who would reconcile and who would redeem all of creation for his glory. And when a person gives up hope in God's promises, that is when compromise is the most enticing. That's when sin is most enticing. It's when we give up on God's promises, when we forget God's promises. Now, these people weren't necessarily taking giant strides of compromise, that's almost never how compromise starts, by taking a giant leap in one direction. No, it starts in the heart, and then you know you usually start taking some, some baby steps here, a couple baby steps toward compromise there, and before you know it, you are miles away from where you started. And so eventually their lives were no longer governed by a desire to live for God. Their lives were no longer governed by a desire to please God. Their lives weren't governed by faith in God. Eventually, their lives became governed by sinful lusts, sinful desires, sinful longings. And so any hope or optimism that we may have had for humanity when we reach the end of chapter 5 is almost entirely decimated. It's just like obliterated, blown away by these first two verses that we see here in chapter 6. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's, what's wrong with what they're doing? Marriage is the big deal. Marriage is very important to God. And it's very important to God that we not only have good marriages, but that we have theocentric marriages if you guys remember that term, God-centered marriages. And so what we see here is that their marriages are no longer theocentric. They're no longer God-centered. Now they are man-centered. They're constructed for the pleasure of man rather than for the glory of God. The family is therefore compromised. Marriage is compromised, so the family is compromised. The family was God's was God's tool. It was designed to be the building blocks for a thriving society in which faith and obedience unto God are taught and nurtured and passed down from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next as the greatest virtues in life. Faith and obedience. God would instruct the Israelites through Moses not to intermarry with the sons and daughters of the people of the land who were not covenant people of God in Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 to 4 say, You shall make no covenant with them. God's speaking to the Israelites. He's saying you shall not make a covenant with them, the people of the land that you're going to be going into. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So this is pretty serious stuff. And, and this is the first case where we see that there's a, there's a problem with intermarrying the way that God is telling them in Deuteronomy not to. You see, a compromising marriage is a big deal. A Christian and a non-Christian have two totally, totally not just different sets of values, but conflicting sets of values. Values that cannot be compromised on or that are extremely, extremely difficult to compromise on and in which you are just in a situation where there's always a temptation to compromise on something that you shouldn't. And compromising the institution of marriage compromises the purpose of marriage and the purpose of the family. And compromising on the purpose of the family eventually leads to an entire culture compromising on faithfulness to God, which leads to all of human civilization compromising in their faithfulness to God. And this is exactly what we see happening here in just the first two verses of Genesis chapter 6. And if you look around at our world today, if you see how the family has been compromised, if you see how the family is being redefined by people who have no fear of God, you see that this is the same situation. We have to understand that the flesh and the world around us are constantly, subtly persuading us in thousands of different little ways that we may not even notice to just make one little baby step of compromise here, one little baby step of compromise there. Uh, it's, it's easier to, to sleep in this morning. I'll go to church next week. Oh, you know, I, I've got this to do. I've got that to do. I don't have time to study my Bible. I don't have time to pray. You know, I'll pray later. I'll... And before you know it, you've made all kinds of baby steps. And you are, before you know it, you're miles away from where you should be. The truth of the matter is that every single one of us prefers the path of least resistance. I think that's just, that's just human nature. It's easier to just go with the flow. It's easier to choose compromise over conflict. And if your heart and your mind are not set on steadfast faithfulness and obedience unto God, you won't even realize that you're taking baby steps of compromise. It's the same principle as a frog in, in a pot of boiling water. You know, if it starts out hot, the frog just, you know, he'll, he'll jump right out. It's too hot. But if the water starts out cold, the frog is comfortable. You turn it up a degree here. You turn it up a degree there. And before you know it, the water's boiling and the frog is dead. Perhaps. For the person who realizes that the water's boiling, perhaps by God's grace, they will look back and realize how far they've backslidden. But the season of compromise 
in your life will have created thought and behavioral patterns and tendencies and inclinations that will be very, very difficult to undo. When we compromise, we waste time that should have been spent in faithful and fruitful service unto the Lord. When we compromise, we invite God's discipline. When we compromise, we invite God's judgment into our lives. Satan's plan of attack has always, always been to entice God's people to make baby steps of compromise. And that's what's happened here. How does God feel about that? That's what Moses is about to tell us. So we continue in Genesis chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. We read, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So first, Moses turns our our thoughts and our, our attention uh, to God's thoughts and God's declarations regarding the sin that we see taking place in verses 1 and 2, the sin that has so thoroughly permeated humanity. And God declares that His Spirit will not strive or contend or abide in, depending on your translation, it will not strive or contend with man forever. Why not? Because man is flesh. You and I come and go like a vapor in the wind. Even these people who were you know, living to like 900 plus years in the previous chapter, even they came and went. But God follows that up by making an interesting statement. He declares His days shall be 120 years. His days shall be 120 years. That is a little bit ambiguous. I think we can probably all agree on that much. There are two ways to interpret this. The first possibility is that this is a restriction on the duration of human life. That God is saying, you're not going to live more than 120 years anymore. So, you know, these people, these people became more and more corrupt the longer they lived. And so maybe God figured that if He shortened their lives to 120 years, they wouldn't become as corrupt as those who were living for several centuries. And I have a tough time with saying that uh, they won't become as corrupt because the human heart from day one is desperately wicked. This view really doesn't add up at all because there were people after uh, Noah who would live well beyond 120 years. Noah lived well beyond 120 years. He'd have three sons when he was 500 years old. Others after the flood would live beyond 120 as well. Abraham would live to 175 years. Isaac would live 180 years. Jacob would live 147 years. So I don't see that this view holds a lot of credibility. It doesn't hold a lot of weight. The second view is that this declaration marks the beginning of a 120-year countdown to the flood. And this seems far more likely Noah hasn't had his three sons yet, so he's not 500 yet. When he has them, he's 500, and the flood comes when he's 600. So it seems more likely that this declaration comes 20 years before 
Noah's sons are born. So this adds up. This makes a little bit more sense. And this brings us to one final part of the text that is that has brought up all kinds of difficulty in, in interpreting the mention of this group called the Nephilim. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we've already established that the sons of God were not fallen angels. Some have speculated that the offspring of fallen angels and, 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 uh, and human beings, uh, this hybrid species, that's who the Nephilim are. But we've already established that it wasn't fallen angels who were called sons of God And there's no indication that these are the offspring of marriages between sons of God and the daughters of man. Where does it say that this is the offspring? It doesn't. It doesn't say that they're the offspring. Moses only tells us that they were on the earth in this time period. That's it. He doesn't tell us who they are. He doesn't tell us which line they came from. He doesn't tell us much about them at all. He just kind of mentions them in passing without giving a whole lot of information. So these are not angel-human hybrids. We know that much for several reasons. First of all, Scripture tells us that angels cannot procreate. Angels cannot procreate. Secondly, more importantly, because it deals with the consistency of our interpretation, look at verse 4. What does Moses call them toward the end of the verse? Men. He calls them men, mighty men. He doesn't call them hybrids or half-breeds or whatever you might come up with. No, these are people. These are human beings. That's all we know about them. Because the Israelites are likened to grasshoppers in comparison to the Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, some have speculated that this is a race of giants. You know, and, and so in comparison, the Israelites are like grasshoppers. But listen, don't get too distracted by the ambiguity here. The point is, the point is that God's people had compromised And that there was great evil and great corruption on the earth. The point is that God had declared that He was going to punish sin. The point is that man's compromise and corruption have a consequence. The point is that compromise invites judgment. The point is that compromise invites discipline. So this brings us to the heart of the passage, giving us a glimpse of how God acts in response to sin. So we continue with Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, which say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This tells us three things, but there are actually four things that we'll see about God's response and his feelings towards sin. God's first response to sin is that he sees it. He sees it. He doesn't just look past it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He sees it. Eve saw that the fruit was good. She takes it as food. The sons of God 
took the sons, saw that the sons of daughters were good, and so they took them as wives. Now Moses tells us that God saw that the wickedness of man was great. What else does he see? What else does he see? He sees that every thought, every inclination, every intention, every opinion, every desire, every longing was what? Kind of bad? Kind of evil? Basically good? No. It was only evil continually. It was only evil continually, meaning it was never even a little bit good. We must understand that apart from God's grace, this description right here, this is the human condition to this very day of the human heart. How pervasive is the wickedness of humanity? It wasn't small. It, It wasn't minor. It was great. It was widespread. It's not like there were people who were not affected by it. How extensive was it? It had permeated the hearts and minds of every person on the face of the earth. It was only evil continually. The words every, only, continually paint a really, really dark, dismal picture of the fallen condition of man, of the human heart apart from God's grace. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, nobody's good, nobody's righteous, nobody seeks for God, not even one. Nobody. Listen, can, can you imagine a world in which people sacrifice their children to the gods of sexual pleasure and human autonomy and that they would openly celebrate the death and dismemberment of children. Can you imagine a world in which certain ethnic groups are systematically oppressed and abused for hundreds of years? A world in which even family members would scam and cheat and steal huge sums of money from one another. A world in which the refusal to endorse something that God has clearly said is sinful is considered hate speech. A world in which the most degenerate people you can imagine are the top two candidates for president. Of course you can. Of course you can imagine this world because that's the world you live in. That's the world today. That's the world we call home. Make no mistake about it, the world is as wicked today as it was in Noah's time because the human heart is as wicked today as it was in Noah's time. Nothing's changed. Nothing. We haven't gotten better. We haven't improved. God sees all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the injustice, and unrighteousness in our world. And that's comforting. It's comforting to know that He sees it. It's comforting to know that he, He knows about it. He's completely aware of it. He hasn't ignored it. He sees it. He knows it all. 
Secondly, God grieves over sin. God regretted that he had made man, according to verse 6. It says it grieved him to his heart. And this is in contrast to humanity, who has no regret, no remorse whatsoever about sin. What a comfort it is to know that God not only sees sin, but that it grieves him. It causes him grief and anguish. He's not apathetic about evil. He's not ambivalent about sin. He sees it and it grieves him. And we should understand that this language, by the way, doesn't indicate that God was taken by surprise. It's not like God you know, saw the wickedness and said, man, I, I just never saw this coming. That is not the case. You know, we, we might say, uh, you know, I regret drinking a, a swig of spoiled milk or something after the case, after you do it. No, when the Bible says that God regretted or that he repented or that he relented, the idea is that his feelings and his emotions toward a person or a people group have changed in, uh, in response to some change that was made by the person or group. So when somebody is in sin and grieving God, his feelings change when they repent and when they turn from their sin. Conversely, when a person is living for God and backsliding and moving further and further away from him, his feelings don't stay the same. They change. What this shows us is that God is not indifferent towards sin. It's not telling us that God wished that he could go back and undo a mistake. God sees sin. He grieves over and hates sin. And third, God punishes sin. He says that he will blot mankind off the face of the earth and all of the animals and all of the birds of the skies are going to be destroyed as well. And that might sound harsh. That might sound really extreme. But first of all, it tells us that if we, if we think that, we have no idea how serious sin is. We have no idea how much God hates sin. God is just. He must condemn and he must punish all sin. But he's also patient. He is also patient. This judgment won't come upon the earth for another 120 years. During which time, Noah would not only build an ark, but he would preach a message of faith and repentance for a hundred years. During which time, he would not see one single convert. Not one. hundred years preaching. And nothing happens. Nothing changes. If you feel discouraged when you go to one person and share the gospel with them, think about Noah. Hundred years. Ugh, that would be that'd be bad. And you know, if you had been alive to witness all this, if you'd been alive to witness all this evil that was filling the earth, you might have thought that God just didn't care about sin because on the surface it didn't look like he's doing anything about it. You might have thought that God was just ambivalent about sin. You might think the same thing if you consider the increasing wickedness on the face of the earth today. That God 
doesn't look like he's doing anything, so he must not care. Friends, do not mistake what you perceive to be a lack of response or action on God's part to be a sign of his acceptance or, uh, or approval of sin. It's not God tolerating sin. It might look like God is doing nothing about the sin that we see around us. You might even be tempted to think that, well, his Bible, the Bible says don't do this, but people are doing it and God isn't, isn't doing anything. So you might even be tempted to think that he must endorse it since he's not stopping it. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. God is sovereign. He hasn't lost control of creation for a millionth of a nanosecond, and we are just so small. We, we can't see the forest for the trees. We have no idea what God's doing. We have no idea. He's, he's raising up people all over the place. He's not just idly standing by, allowing sin or approving of sin. He's going to come again. The day of judgment against all sin is coming. He's going to judge the nations when He comes again. He's going to deal completely with sin. In His patience, He just hasn't brought it all to an end yet. Yet. If the culture embraces sin, we cannot join them. If the culture embraces something that God clearly labels as sin in His Word, we cannot join them. If the culture around us celebrates sin, we cannot join them. We must not compromise. As the famous Puritan author and preacher Thomas Watson said, quote, Sin is never the better because it is in fashion. Nor will this plea hold at the last day that we did as the majority. God will say, seeing you sinned with the multitude, you shall go to hell with the multitude. End quote. The point is that God does not take sin lightly. He does not deal with it casually. God sees sin. God hates and grieves over sin. He's promised to punish sin. And finally, fourth, he gives grace. Our passage continues, verses 8 and 9. Say this. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So this dark and dismal passage concludes with a glimpse of hope, which we all know, as we've seen in Genesis, a glimpse of hope is way more than enough when we're talking about God being involved in something. All you need is just the slightest glimpse of hope. Like his ancestor Enoch, Noah walked with God. Moses tells us that he was righteous and blameless in his generation, to which I say, really? Really, was he now? That's an interesting statement because we're talking about a guy who was far from perfect. Far from perfect. He, he sinned. 
He, he did some pretty bad things in his time, things that we'll learn about after the flood. He wasn't the one exception to the none is righteous clause. I'll just say that. He's not the exception. So what is it? Why does Moses tell us that he was righteous? Why does Moses tell us that he was blameless in his generation? Was he just righteous and blameless compared to everybody else? No. There's not one time in Scripture where somebody is called righteous just because they're better than other people. So the thing that we need to be looking for is what made Noah righteous? What made him blameless? The thing that made Noah righteous and blameless was the grace of God alone. God's grace made Noah righteous. God's grace made Noah blameless. Like anyone who has ever been saved, Noah was saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Apart from God's grace, Noah was a wretched sinner, just like you and me, just like everybody else in the world that he lived in. Remember, apart from God's grace and his work of redemption, none is good, none is righteous, none seeks God. Noah's not the exception, but Noah finds God's favor, which is just another way of saying God granted him unmerited grace. And grace, of course, by definition, is unmerited. It's not deserved. It's not earned. Grace isn't earned by living a good, upstanding, moral life. Grace isn't earned by being better than everybody else. Grace is received through faith in God's promised offspring, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ alone would qualify to take our sin and the punishment that our sin has earned us. That's what we've earned. And he took those upon himself. Noah was saved by grace through faith. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, which says this. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's why... Noah was righteous. That's why Noah was blameless in his generation. He feared God and he acted in obedience to God. You see, true biblical faith affects our hearts and our minds. It causes us to fear God, to see Him rightly and to fear God and therefore act in obedience to Him. Unlike the people of Noah's day, We don't need to fear a cataclysmic worldwide flood that will wipe humanity off the face of the earth. No, God has promised that he won't do that again. But we must fear a more serious judgment, and that is being drowned in a flood of our own sin. Life is short. Eternity is very long. Our only hope is in the grace of God. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. Jesus is your only hope. Friends, apart from Christ's work of redemption, we are no better than the people in Noah's day. Without Christ, the penalty of sin remains squarely on our shoulders. 
Without him, we will bear the wrath against those sins. Without him, we have no hope of grace or forgiveness or restoration with God. It's been reported that one of the primary causes of death in the Grand Canyon is people being careless. Carelessness in a place like the Grand Canyon is a bad, bad thing. There are people who see that there are signs that are set up clearly stating, do not go beyond this point. You know, there are guardrails for people to stand behind, but people, by our nature, we love to test the limits. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. People, by nature, starting like day one, we love to test the limits. And so these people get closer to the edge than they should, and they fall to their deaths. And the tragic, tragic thing about these deaths is that they were avoidable. It shouldn't have happened. There were signs. There were guardrails. There was every reason in the world to be further away from the edge than they were when they fell. And in hindsight, we can, we can recognize how foolish it was to go too close to the edge. And yet many of us approach sin by asking the question, how close can I get without going too far? How close can I get without going too far? How, how, how much can I compromise without compromising too much? We avoid God's warning signs, and we set ourselves up for disaster, confident that we will be the exception. Nobody else can go beyond that point, but we can. Friends, the day is coming when God will bring every single thought, every word, every deed into the light, and He will judge it. He will deal with it swiftly, He will deal with it harshly, and He will deal with it eternally. Compromising with sin is an invitation for God's judgment into your life. But, if you want to be saved from the consequences of your sin, then pray. Pray and ask God to be merciful to you, a sinner. Pray and ask God to change your heart, to change your desires so that you would not desire to compromise with sin. That you would see the ugliness of sin as it truly is. That's grace when we see how ugly and how bad sin truly is. Do you want to be counted righteous? Do you want to be counted blameless before God? then turn from your sin today. Turn from your sin now and plead with Jesus to rescue you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. He will. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who has sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Paul would say, Romans 8.1, the verse I told you guys to memorize, therefore there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Noah would build an ark, and while he did, he'd preach about the coming judgment. People would have to believe him and get in the ark to be saved from the flood. For us, we have to believe in Christ. They would only find safety in the ark. We will only find safety in Christ. So look to him. Look to him and come to him. Repent and believe in him. Because he is the only way to escape the judgment which is to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on your word through the week, that it would change us, that it would do your work in us, teaching us, Lord, to turn from sin, teaching us to live for you, teaching us not to compromise with sin. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, may we be a people who live for your glory. And may we turn from sin. May we see it by your grace. May we see it for how ugly it is and nasty it is. And may our desires be changed for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper